0: It is The Shepherdess at Harmony Farms where we encourage you to think big, start small, and don't quit. Today I am bringing you episode 8 of The Shepherdess Podcast. And today's episode is pulled from last month, which would be April 2021's Small Farmer Virtual Meetup. Now, this is a live monthly meetup absolutely free that I host every month to give farmers across the nation and now the world a place to share skills, resources and encouragement. I highly encourage you to check it out using the link in the show notes and please register to join us for May's virtual small farmer meetup. These meetups happen the fourth Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. Central Time. Today we have Mr. Carl Abel. He was the co-host for April's Small Farmer Virtual Meetup. He is a 20 year regenerative rancher and he has a lot to share with us today. He was taking questions live from the audience and sharing about his operation and his experience at Abel Grasslands Ranch. To give you a little bit of context on just what that experience entails, Mr. Carl Abel pretty much single-handedly manages an 1,100-acre ranch. He ranches large-scale beef cattle as well as meat goats in Upper East Texas. I'm going to jump to today's episode, but if you guys would like to get in touch with me, please send me an email at shepherdess at blog. Are we live? Give us a thumbs up. If you can see us, two thumbs up. If you can hear us, we were having a bit of nervousness about the audio before we went on. So let us know if you can see and hear us, I guess they can hear me because if they're following the instructions, Actually, we this. got
1: lots of thumbs up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Guys, we had 200 registrants, 205 to be exact from 14 different countries joining us tonight probably the biggest one we've ever had and i think it's really big considering the fact this is a busy time of year for a lot of people you just finished kidding what was your final results on your kid crop we
1: did fairly well we had almost 1.6 that's pretty good yeah
0: you started out with like i texted your wife and you started out with like five sets of triplets yeah wish i could yeah. say that was well nice. that
1: that has its blessings but it has its challenges yeah so.
0: So we had Australia, South Africa. I hope you're on here, John Dray. Canada, Iraq, Fiji, United Kingdom, Turkey, Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana, Latvia, Germany, and the Netherlands, as well yeah. as the good old USA. So please let's start it off here by telling us where you're from. And if you are farming, if you're raising livestock, tell us what you are raising. All right, guys, I started this meetup because we are It's going to be sounding kind of politically incorrect, but centrality is fragility. And I think even our founding fathers had that right. We're here because we want to be small scale food producers in one sense or another. And in when I started in on this, I wanted to create a way to network that wasn't so very centralized as we see on Facebook, or on Instagram, and also a more close knit opportunity to share skills and resources. When people leave here, this one guy, he said, it felt like spending a whole hour with family. That's just kind of how, how much he enjoyed it. So a lot of people ask me, and I guess this is somewhere I want to draw you in, is like, how do I get started if I can't afford land? And if I can't, if I don't have any resources of my own?
1: And there there are a lot of uh, small acreage farmers that are on the edge of urban areas that really just don't quite know what to do with their property. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for somebody with a lot of energy that can mm-hmm. handle the work. The work is something, maybe they're retired, maybe they don't have that much energy or whatever. There's some opportunity there. And if you can demonstrate that you're capable and you understand how to do it and you're willing to stick with it and see it through, Mm -hmm. there's probably some opportunity there that people are not really taking advantage of.
0: And you might have to be a young person that goes and knocks on some doors, you know, just to show your willingness. But I Mm -hmm. think that's a really good, um, a really good point there. Roxy, starting a flock, working towards a solar grazing flock. Oh, have you seen the solar farms that are going in up close to Paris? Mm. That didn't make me feel very happy. Uh, there's
1: some, yeah, I struggle both ways with that. Yeah, I know what you mean, Greg. <laughs> but there's some opportunity there yeah. for sheep and goats in those solar farms.
0: Yes, I have seen, I have, when there's I saw that for the first time, there. I said, I need to get in touch with management because I might be able to run a grazing program. Absolutely. Yeah, but, okay, not problems, solutions, guys. <laughs> Let's look for solutions. Oh, Jeff says lease the land which he would have done that to start with. So leasing instead of buying is what Jeff is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, Shanna says running layers, a few hair sheep and starting with feeder pigs, hoping to expand the pigs. Jamette just moved from Orlando, Florida back home in Puerto Rico. I'm organizing a new beef ranch and trying to learn. Okay, so I'm just gonna get straight to it with some questions from Mr. Carl Abel on his ranch. Mr. Carl, what was your background, did you come from a ranching family? And in simultaneously, guys, answer this question for me. Did you guys come from any agricultural background yourselves? Answer that in the, in the comments as Mr. Carl answers yeah. for me.
1: I my, my immediate family did not have any background in agriculture. I had an uncle and a part of my father's family that were still on a farm. And we would go visit the farm once every three or four years and it was just amazing to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. That was probably the first draw. And then after that, I really never had any opportunity. We lived in kind of urban areas, but I was always drawn to it. And so when I was, I had a very good, I kind of did college for a little bit, and then I had a pretty good job. And then when I was about 24, I decided, I was going to go to Montana and work on a ranch. (laughs)
0: That was your first large scale experience. That was
1: my first dive in. (laughs) head first and it was fantastic.
0: So how long did you spend there?
1: Two years, two Two winters. Yeah. And you got thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Uh,
1: but I also had some other goals that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then so got away from, uh, being immediately in touch with the ranching for, probably 20 years i worked off and on i have a wonderful brother who uh, husbandry just a really good source for me and i would work with them on different ranches whenever i had time Mm -hmm. but i was able to come back to ranching when i was uh about 40 early 40s Mm -hmm. and by then i had some fairly successful careers before mm-hmm. that I had enough funds to kind of, then I can mm-hmm. get in and have a place. of yeah. my own.
0: So you were able to actually go straight to buying your land mm-hmm. because you did have that bit of a career before you, and you had sort of some capital
1: to, get, right. to get going with Right, right.
0: the, um, when you bought your land, how, what was its previous use and really how you're a regenerative rancher. How would you have described it when you came into ownership of it?
1: It, it, like most of the area, this was cotton area. This was cotton was king. All this, just about all this land here was under row crop cultivation for about over a hundred years. Now, if you pause a moment and you think about starting row crop farming in, say, let's say about 1860, this soil was phenomenal. They did not fertilize. They they did that for about a hundred years with hardly any fertilizer mm-hmm. It must have been Amazing soil. This was prairie soil mm-hmm. here But by the time we came it had been Very exhausted. Most of the families Could no longer make a living with row crops. And so it was very Marginal land. It was not something that could sustain a living. They were trying mm-hmm. And they were, that was a mass exodus in the 50s and 60s. They couldn't raise their families anymore. And so it was worn out.
0: It was depleted to the place where it could not provide the living that it once did for so many who moved here. That's
1: correct. That's correct, Grace. And so, for lack of anything else to do, they just started running livestock, started running a few cows. They call it go back land, mm-hmm. go back land. Mm-hmm. It's just, you don't do anything. You don't plan anything for cattle. You just let right. it go back and you put some cows there. Right. Right. And so that's what we started with. Mm-hmm. And we're in 45 inches of rainfall here. And so the woody species encroachment, the, wood, the trees are constantly looking to come in and take over again. Mm-hmm. So, that was very much happening on the property that we started with and without some pretty quick intervention and mm-hmm. trying to do brush control and yeah. basically any way you could do it uh it would have been taken over
0: mm-hmm.
1: very quickly by a woody yeah. species
0: um justine we live in about an hour east of dallas fort worth do you think that would be about an accurate she says, where are in East Texas do hour, we live? The hour,
1: and, uh, 30 hour yeah. and 30 minutes. Hour in 30
0: minutes. It's mm-hmm. called Sulfur Springs. I'm gonna say that because this is a private group. <laughs> but yeah, Sulphur Springs, Texas. And um then somebody wants to know. Oh, this question's coming down the line. He wants to know how long it took you, essentially, before you know you bought your beef cattle, before your <laughs> your investment intensive period was over and it started to sort of float on its own.
1: Probably about we went through a pretty intense grass planning uh, phase and that lasted about three years or so. Mm-hmm. And we started with a small herd of cow. Okay. I started with 10 and then I would add yeah. another 10, three, four, you know, two, three years later. And I just basically watched the grass resource. And I knew that Mm, if it's a newly planted stand of grass, we're gonna have to do this slowly and not put too much pressure on it. Mm -hmm. So as the grass would progress, I'd add a few more.
0: So you managed for what your resources could sustain. You know, you didn't chuck in a bunch of hay to say, I wanted 50 cows and You know, you didn't chuck in the resources, you worked with your resources. That's a
1: very good point, Grace, because and we're we're people and we're Americans, and we want what we do to seem important and big. And so we Mm -hmm. want to say more numbers about, I have more cows or whatever, but pay real close attention to that resource because that grass is your resource. The Mm -hmm. cattle, the sheep, the goats, The livestock, that's just something to offer you a means to harvest that resource, Mm -hmm. but the grass is your resource and that's that's what you need to focus on.
0: Okay guys, keep dropping your um, your questions. I'm gonna go down a list of my questions, but if you have any good questions like we have just asked, please drop them for Mr. Carl. So what, meaning why regenerative? Was it something you initially went into this thing? I wanna go make this land better or was it sort of an evolution of mindset for you? How did it kind of come? You know, you were 45 you bought that land.
1: Basically, I want to make this better and I want to try to eventually do this where this is my only job. And so mm-hmm. I've got to get it improved enough so that my forage production is, is enough that it will sustain a living for me. So it was a, a long-term I want to make this all better and I want the grassland mm-hmm. ecology to be better. I had seen, I had traveled quite a bit. I had seen some different mm-hmm. grasslands. I know it can be better. Mm-hmm. So I want to do that. But on a short term, I still have to pay my bill. Mm-hmm. I still have to provide for my family. Mm-hmm. So that's all got to be meshed together mm-hmm. and, and work together.
0: And for you, I mean, could you share a timeline? Was it 15, you've been at this for 20 years. Did it take you 10 years before that?
1: Well, that's a good, very good point. My wife was still working at the college uh, about six years after we started. And at that point, we began our family. I was getting a little bit older, and we had to make a kind of a a decision for our family. And so we basically said, okay, she was going to spend her time with the family. And so that meant that income stream was going to stop. And so I was like, you know, I think it's progressed enough where I think we can do that. Let's yeah. let's go for it.
0: So you sort of jumped, you went out on a limb a little bit, but I cannot think that's where everybody is in this particular line of work. Yeah. With yeah. respect to going yeah. occupational for it, I have not heard a story yet where somebody was able to comfortably <laughs> make that decision. And, you know, it is going out on a limb. Somebody wants to know what cattle you started with.
1: I started with, uh my idea was Angus based black cattle. They tend to bring a better, a little bit better price here. But I must say I was not picky enough with mm-hmm. the first cattle that I bought. That's a good point. I think focusing on something that's grass fed, focusing on something that is a good quality grass fed genetics yeah. is important because once you start, it takes a long time to change what you already yes. have. Right. So if you can start with something really good, man, you're way ahead. Yeah. Now, I probably had 20 cows that were, they were pretty good cows, but they weren't really, after I looked at it and studied it a little bit more, they weren't really just what I wanted. And then I started really focusing on what I wanted.
0: That's a good, uh, good question and good point. And I think for so many people being here, we're just starting in, can you put a little plug in for genetics or, you know, how can well, we find good genetics? Here, what should we look for?
1: In a nutshell.
0: And you, well, I guess another question would be, do you think that your genetics that you have now, which are really good plays into an increase or uptick in profitability?
1: It does. And it, a lot of people again, view, what they're raising in livestock, they view the livestock as a resource. But let's take a step back and look at the resource as the forage or the grass. So now you've got basically these tons of forage and you're turning them into a product. Mm -hmm. So whatever you can do to increase dollars per pound, to me, that's what's giving me the most for my resource. So... I can try to aim for, you know, there's a lot of uh, say bragging rights in high winning weight. Oh, I weaned calves that were so big. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what did you get per pound yeah. for that which you produced mm, in grass? Yeah. So if you've got a grass uh, based genetics, And you can produce something that's high quality. And I mean, I'm Angus with Hereford Mm -hmm. cross and both of the two bloodline, both the the, the, uh, genetics that I use are grass based genetics. Some of the older Mm -hmm. genetics, some of the newer genetics are more leaning towards the grain part of it.
0: And by older, you mean like pre grain? system
1: there were a lot of good grass genetics back in the 40s and 50s and everybody in the last 30 or 40 years has leaned the other way and they want bigger animals and they want
0: big bones Um, and
1: so anyway that's the genetics that i go with
0: yeah so you started with angus but you've combined hereford but more than any more than a breed it is an eye for what you know you like you called it old genetics is it an eye more than a specific breed
1: well an animal that's grass-based genetics does well just on grazing yeah right. and those cows that are grass-based genetics will breed back for you mm-hmm. better just on grass with a minimum amount of, of supplement mm-hmm. because that's what they're designed to do yeah. typically they have a little bit shorter stance, a little bit broader. So that, and I like to think of it as a grass processor, that expanded gut Mm -hmm. is allowing them to take a few more pounds of forage an hour or a day. Mm -hmm. And that puts that efficiency back into that animal.
0: Somebody asked, how do you find good grass fed sheep, grass fed sheep and cows to buy? Where do you source, you know, your animals? from. Where's I talked any... to,
1: yes, I talked to a lot of people. There's some other, uh, groups. There's a, a, national grazing land coalition. That's a really good group. That's, uh, across the whole United States. And a lot of those guys that are embracing these rotational grazing methods and this grass ecology are on those sites. NatGLC. GLC, the states, each of the states, also has one like Texas GLC in the Louisiana or Kansas or whatever.
0: And so those would be those they themselves would be sellers of. The there stock. would be
1: groups of people that would have seed okay. seed stock mm-hmm. within those groups. You because can start asking.
0: Yeah, with national grazing lands, I think the emphasis is forage resource as primary, and so I guess the cattle that will be coming from there would be as well. A good question would be. So sheep are typically coined as better sheep and goats, the smaller ruminants would be considered better forage converters. Do you think that is true and that it's less, have you less picky about genetics on those?
1: Not really. I think of course, if you're leaning towards, you know, a a lamb that's for meat, you want to go towards those breeds that are more geared for meat. Uh, and of course sheep are grazers goats are primarily browsers so sheep are going to compete with your cattle a little bit mm-hmm. whereas goats are not going to compete very much okay. with your cattle and so depending on the piece of property that you have access mm-hmm. to really is what you want to look at mm-hmm. your resource again back to the grass do i mostly have a place that's got grass or some forbs or is it Little brushy, maybe there's a creek bottom or something that offers something for goats. Yeah. But if you have clean pastures with just grass, yeah, then goats, you know, we're not going to do the best that there. Useful. Yeah. Well, that's
0: an interesting point yeah, because you you're large scale on the beef cattle now, but you started with goats.
1: With goats, right? Yeah, yeah because it was so brushy.
0: Right. So again, you paired we, the animal that would do The well resource to the resource.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. All right. Jeff says that good on grass cattle would be Highlands, Galloways, and Dexter's. I've seen a lot of the the belted Galloways Mm -hmm. in the heritage breed arena. Shanna says that she keeps hearing, don't go to the sale barn, but she has no idea where else to go for, um, is that for sales or stock, Shanna? Somebody asked you, um, how do you sell your products? How do you sell your, your livestock?
1: I sell mine mainly directly to uh, larger cattle sales. I found markets that offer the best price for me. I do with my cattle, I do a preconditioning program that's quite intensive. When you do those and you have them preconditioned, you know, wean from their mothers for plus 60 days, you get a premium for those cattle. Yeah you can do direct marketing and you can realize quite a lot of additional profit there. But with what I have to take care of, right. I don't have the time to do the marketing and to do the extra steps yeah. to get that extra profit. But many people do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a lot of work to make sure you get your customers lined up and your market and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, and that's kind of the direction I'm going is direct marketing, but it it is a time-consuming thing, and I think I was thinking the other day, you know, there's a lot that we need to consider as far as our systems, and matching our systems as much with our human resource as we do with our natural resource, really.
1: You don't want to burn out, you know, you're trying to make it pleasurable, and you're trying to, you don't mind working hard, because it's going to be hard work, but at the same time, you want it to be enjoyable.
0: And that's really, I think that's something I'm coming to understand is that, yes, let's consider our forage resource, but let's also consider our, our human resource um, with respect to our systems overall. Cause I think I have this set of ideals, you know, it would be ideal if I could move my sheep once a day and this and this and this, but I came to the point where I'm like, they're fine moving twice a week and that's a better match. There you go. And that's a better match for my human resource. So I hope that encourages someone out there who might be finding themselves uh, adjusting their ideals, Shanna, Justine, um,
1: that I'm just going to make one comment about that's a real good interval on your move mm-hmm. because of the length of time after that parasite is, is mm-hmm. the parasite thing is huge with yes. small ruminants. So the parasite needs about five to seven days after it's expelled with the feces, the eggs mm-hmm. take about five to seven days to hatch. Mm-hmm. So, if you're moving them twice a week, that'll do it. That'll do
0: it. And that's encouraging because that's primarily what pushes me with the uh, management intensive grazing end of it mm-hmm. is just that that the sheep do struggle a lot with that. It has a lot to do. I talk about it a lot on my YouTube channel, and some people don't understand it because they live in South Texas, where they live where it's really dry. But it has a lot to do with where I'm at. We get above average rainfall. We we'll my... get
1: 45 inches. Yeah. And a bunch of it comes in the time of year when the parasites are just going yeah. nuts.
0: Yeah. Um, Justine, Shepherdess, do you have goats? I was going to start buying goats first to clear the weeds, thorns, et cetera. No, I don't have goats. Um, got my hands full of sheep, so I'll probably not to you. goats at the moment. Um, Jimette, he never ranched before. He got a beginner farmer loan from FSA. The local authority is leasing Good. 100 acres for affordable price. Grass is six foot tall. How many heads would you recommend? I was thinking of getting 50 cow calf pairs imported blacks. What's your opinion? Can you give an opinion on that?
1: Yes, hundred acres and what's your, the rainfall is one thing that I would, you know, key in on. If you're in 30 inches of rainfall, I would not start with 50 cows. I would start with 25 and then you can add as you go and you're going to have heifers coming off of the cows that you pick. You can build your own stuff. If you like your genetics and you want to, Hey, I want to keep with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Andre says, what do you think about finishing cows on grain?
1: What I think, think it. I it? think it's good. It has its place. Uh, I'm, I'm a bigger proponent of grass fed, but the grain fed stuff is good. Uh, I, as a as a, a, a forage based uh, cattle, a beef producer, realize a profit, a better profit from doing it on grass. Right.
0: That's a good point. That's a really good point. Doubles back to uh, growing with your resources as well. Cause if, if somebody was to bring in 50 cows on a piece of barren land, might be cheaper to feed them a little bit of grain. You won't
1: have any choice of this. They'll, you won't th- have any they'll choice. fall apart. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, James asks, how did you deal with the tree encroachment? Much of our property has been left to rest for five to seven years and has a lot of mesquite growing on it, but we want to have animals graze.
1: Okay. You can I've done and I've cleared land extensively many different ways. If you can use a Chainsaw, and there's a a herbicide called Remedy or Relegate, and you mix that with diesel. When you cut that, whatever you cut, whatever live tree you cut off with that saw or whatever you cut it off, you poison that stump with that diesel and Remedy mixture, and that's the end of it. It'll kill it.
0: So that's your recipe.
1: Yeah. And so you can do it with heavy equipment too. Mm -hmm. Depends on your time frame, really, and how much time you can devote, how physically fit you are, because it's quite a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But I've cleared several hundred acres.
0: Somebody asked if you don't mind sharing how much acreage you have, if you don't mind divulging that. We
1: have a little over a thousand acres, and it's probably 750 of that is what I would call open pasture. And then we have some what's kind of savanna, which is mixed oaks and and grassland and then we have some wooded areas that are creek bottom with big mature timber in them but about 750 is open pasture land and and with trees nearby those open pastures that's what those woodies are trying to spread Mm -hmm. so it's continual process
0: somebody says um what about livestock guardian dogs would you do dogs or donkeys? I've heard the donkey thing and I've been curious about it. Have you heard?
1: I've heard I've had, and I was very reluctant at the beginning to get the guardian dog. Cause I, you know, I have toddler had, when we started, I had little toddlers and I was like, Oh, I don't think that's, but I have totally enjoyed the guardian dog. We've had nine or 10 over the past 15, 20 years. they Never had an aggressive moment with anyone, that's good. guests, family members, or anybody. And without those dogs, I would not be able to raise goats. You, you're, mm-hmm. you're turning these goats loose in big really? pastures. There's coyotes, bobcats, all kinds of things. you a
0: huge amount of acreage compared to...
1: If you have something that's right next to your house, yeah. and you have maybe a family dog that's making the round a little bit and leaving his scent, you might be okay if you have a mesh like a mesh fence that the couch can't get in
0: easily yeah just a small scale perspective on that is that we have 30 acres and if we can keep them within i would say well let's just say our house is set right in the middle of the 30 acres and as we get to the 20 percent outer edge we begin to have enough trouble to where we we got to bring them back so that's that's for sure. And what do you think about donkeys? Have you heard that? Well, I've heard. That's kind of the thing,
1: thing is about donkeys, I've heard as much, probably 50, 50, 50% had a negative experience. The donkeys can get aggressive. They can actually pick up the sheep, the lamb and thrash them or the, the, the kid goats and thrash them mm-hmm. and hurt them. Yeah. Or you get one, I'm going to say, you know, two or three donkeys out of 10. And this is just what I hear people talking about who try donkeys. Two or three out of ten would be like, okay, yeah, they're good. Mm-hmm. But you got quite a few to go through to get those two yeah. or three.
0: <laughs> Somebody, Puel says, what do you feed during preconditioning?
1: During preconditioning, the key to I find to preconditioning is get save some pasture right where those calves are being weaned and do a fence what's called a fence line weaning so those calves are on good forage with their moms just across the fence Mm. any animal with a full belly is going to wean much healthier than something you've got locked in a dusty trap Mm. and you're trying to wean them Mm. and they're breathing dust and they're not familiar with the feed but i also supplement them with uh just some creep feed a little bit of creep feed in troughs right there where the fence is where those calves are congregating to ball at their moms i put them put some feed in those troughs and over about four or five days they gradually start to figure out hey this is pretty good
0: yeah that's neat and that's as much about stress levels as anything with respect to getting a good i mean i wouldn't initially think that that would impact body condition but stress does. it
1: impact everything it does hmm. It absolutely great it's just like us stress is a right immune system for humans it
0: does horrible things yeah so.
1: immune system and so yeah that's huge i treat we wean about a little over 100 calves a year i might treat in the last 10 years i might treat one calf a year when that's i'm trying good. to wean them it's very good
0: that's really good yeah Um, Jeff says, chip your mesquite trees, bag it, and sell it to H-E-B. So if anybody has mesquite (laughs) out there, follow Jeff's solution. Um, So Jeremy Hammer asks, what is your opinion for number of sheep to cows per acre ratio with rotational grazing? It's a bit of a broad question, but.
1: It is. I have a friend of mine who's experimenting. They're in Kansas, and he's running the cattle and the sheep in the same pasture at the same time. He's gotten his guard dog used to that. It takes making sure that those cows are familiar with those guard dogs. Their natural instinct is to drive those guard dogs away. So you've got to get them make sure they're conditioned before you mix the two together. The cows
0: more so than the sheep? Like the cows will drive them
1: off. Yeah, because they're like, they see this dog. If they've never been around guard dogs, they're like, oh, uh uh-uh, you ain't getting by my calf. And they'll drive them.
0: makes a lot of sense
1: anyway it takes a little while to get them conditioned i run mine separate because i've experienced calves that got excited and so forth because the dogs don't know and so i run my goats and my cattle separate
0: yeah i did try the multi-species thing on a small scale uh, last fall it worked until i had to start supplementing them for winter Mm -hmm. and then the sheep ate everything i put out for the cows and vice versa had to separate them. Now I'm, I'm trying to put them back together, Yeah. but the cows are jumping the fence really. Bad. <laughs> so,
1: so you gotta get one more. Yeah, gotta them. get yeah. A,
0: like, gotta swing up another one. Yeah. Um, somebody asked, did you get into livestock management as a passion or because you saw it as an opportunity for profit?
1: Definitely as a passion. I. As I was mentioning before, when I was 20-something, you know, I left everything I knew as home and everything I knew as a living, and I went and worked on a ranch. I just, I found it the most amazing adventure you could have. So that's my passion. But at the same time, let's be real. We have to provide a living for our families and so forth. So now I've got to turn this passion into Mm -hmm. a way that I can navigate and make a living for my family.
0: Mm Oh, did you answer? What is your opinion for number of sheep to cows ratio? I, I really don't.
1: Number. I really don't know. What I do, I can tell you this: it's about six to one, and that's just based on body size and forage intake. But the thing with the sheep and the goats is, yeah. you one more thing of, of a limiting kind of uh, thing. Is where are you going to kid those? Use are those mama goats out okay mm-hmm. because you're kidding can be very intensive if you want to be real successful so if you say wow i could run 150 Us, you could but one of your limiting things may right. be that in the kidding time are you willing to do or can you physically you may have yeah. other op- obligations or whatever or you may not have a a a shed that's big enough to get them out of the freezing rain or whatever. So when you're kidding or lambing, that's going to be one of your limiting things too. All
0: right. So yeah, the six, and then the, the, what breed of guardian dogs did you buy? I heard great Pyrenees bark all night is what Justine says.
1: I like the temperament of the Pyrenees. I've, I've done the arc I like the temperament of the arc which is a short hair. He looks like a white, sort of like a white lab. So the okbosh is good. The Pyrenees is good. I have a Maremo, of course. Maremo is an Italian. There's, it's just the Italians got to have their big dog compared to the Frenchman. You know, he's got the Pyrenees. But the, the Maremo is a very good dog as well. The, I like the temperament. I have also used Anatolian. They, and it may be the particular dog that I have, He's a little bit uh, more assertive with young animals. I, I didn't like that quite as much, but he's doing a good job now.
0: Which breed was that? I missed it.
1: The Anatolian. Okay,
0: Shepherd. But
1: the Maremo and the Bosch and the Pyrenees would be my pick. Okay,
0: those are good. Um, Mike Eon says, what do you feel is the max area per dog um, each dog could cover as far as acreage?
1: If I get in pastures, big pastures, you know, up 100 acres, I want two dogs. If I'm in, you know, something 30 acres, I do, one dog is plenty. Yeah. yeah. One dog is good. So you That's can good. kind of extrapolate from there. When I, want... I when I get in real big pastures in the 200 acre size, then I want three dogs.
0: Okay. So it would be acre rather than flock size. I thought they moved yeah. with the flock.
1: They do. But what happens in those big pastures, the flock can separate. And so you see a lot more dynamic movement where you need another dog in one area or another
0: to cover. All right. So somebody here says, how do you get your sheep to go in the pen every night? I don't put my sheep in a pen every night. Do you put your goats in the pen every night? But you
1: could easily with a bucket of feed. Yeah, right. I mean, that's a lot of what I I handle my livestock with is a bucket of feed and you don't have to give them much. But everybody like a candy ball.
0: That's a good one. <laughs> Gilbert asks, What kind of resources do you use for creating a grazing management plan, resource evaluation plan, pasture conditions, future weather forecasts, etc.? What do you
1: there's a super there's several really good resources? The NRCS is available to each and every person in the United States. You just simply have to call and to visit with them, they have some good people and their staff. And if the person that you happen to get on the phone is not specialized in in the question that you have, they can put you in touch with somebody and they're a great bunch. They work with the National Grazing Land Coalition. They work with other grazing groups and they're very good resource. They also do, for all of you who are starting these projects, they do cost share They do technical advising, but they also so do cost share on some of the projects, fences, waters, and brush control, and some other stuff, you can get cost share. You have to apply, and it's a government entity, so you have to fill out some paperwork, (laughs) but it can be very rewarding, and I will say those guys helped me tremendously in the early days when I had some real projects to get through some economic times that I was right on the fringe. I don't know if I could have done it without some of their cost share.
0: So you would recommend that to Gilbert over NRCS to look for, to get some resource consultation, essentially?
1: Resource consultation and ask them about the cost share on the projects that you would like to do. There's also another real good group that I've worked with in Ardmore, Oklahoma, the noble foundation, the noble, it's now called the noble research, uh, noble research Institute, excuse They are a super bunch of people, very, very good at what they do and very realistic about their advice on livestock. They do almost all free consultation. They will come out if you're in a certain radius, it, it, it is limited to a certain radius, but real good guys, and they have a—they actually have a hot—an advice line, a hotline. You can call. You can find it on the web, the uh, Noble Research Institute. They have a hotline for questions. If you have—and if I run into like really detailed stuff with my feed or whatever I'm doing, and I'm like, I have not found the real answer to this question, and I go to them man, they've answered it one way or another every time I've called them. And they'll call you back within an hour with a specialist. They've got a staff of PhDs and other guys that are great. Hmm. They really are.
0: So one of the things I wanted to touch on was that you don't feed any hay over winter. Is this exclusively because of the native grasses you're working with, or could I build a pasture that would do the same thing for me?
1: You can, to a certain extent, build a pasture without the native grasses, but it's the the difficult months and where we are, heavy rainfall. So you put some cold, freezing, frost conditions on the forage, and then you turn loose a deluge of rain. You're taking the protein, you're taking the structure of that plant is just gonna go to the ground and it's not gonna be available for those cows. So Bermuda grass and I, in this area, we have Bermuda grass, bahia grass, dallas grass. Mm-hmm. And those three grasses are the introduced grasses that most people have planted over the years. Mm-hmm. Bermuda grass stockpiles, and we call stockpiling forage, and that is what you do for your winter forage. You're going to stockpile either right. natives or you're going to... So when you stockpile it, which ones last the best? Right. So out of the introduced species, Bermuda grass lasts the best. Mm-hmm. Bahia is probably second. And Dallas grass is the poorest. Dallas grass is a great forage, super forage. Mm-hmm. But when you put two or three hard frosts on it and then a rain, it's just
0: yeah.
1: not very good anymore.
0: Yeah. Somebody says, have you utilized the Kerr Foundation in Pateau, Oklahoma? Pateau, tell
1: you. The Kerr? No, I have not. That, that may be another very good resource. The one I use in Oklahoma is that Noble Foundation, that Noble Research Institute.
0: Jacqueline says, this man is a wealth of information. Please share his contact information. Do you have a website? Do you have anything to where people can see you?
1: I don't have a website. You need
0: to come perform on the web tomorrow. I'm teaching people how to build websites, guys. I'm going to put the button up. But no. So, yeah. so you need to probably share your email address if you're willing to take people's emails.
1: Well, what I can do is let you kind of, if you would feel them Grace, I would be happy to do that. Guys, shepherdess
0: yeah. at harmonyfarms.blog. If you have any questions yeah. for Mr. Carl,
1: yeah. sometimes because what I do can be intense for a week, yeah. two weeks, and then
0: I was going to ask, you just got done with kidding, but how does your calving fall in line in with that? Same time. Same time. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, does the um, the kidding was hands on intensive? You showed me the yes. kidding barn. Is the calving a little bit less? So?
1: Not for my. Mature cows, I don't do anything, but count the cat basically try to get a birthday for most of the cows. So I know if they're what their performance is. And then I've got a group of heifers that can be. Yeah, heifers. Yeah, just <laughs> the first
0: timers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> 10 minutes off you guys. So please leave your own contact information for everybody to get in touch with 1 another. To continue the networking throughout the month uh, before we meet again next month. So thank you, Rachel, for mentioning that drop. Your Instagram handles, your websites, whatever you feel comfortable with. This is a closed group, um, so it's not public. So drop it here to stay in touch with one another. And I'll be leaving this page up for just a little bit after we're done here. All right, so Annette and Joe ask, are you using hard electric or solar electric chargers? If solar, which one have you found to be the best? We are off-grid and don't want to waste money on subpar systems.
1: I don't use the solar. I, I use a 12 volt marine battery with a charger. Uh, there are several good the StayFix, the uh, Patriot. Uh, uh, what's the New Zealand one? Uh, you, you Gallagher. A, Gallagher. Yeah. But. When you size that fence and you think okay this is what the kind of the design the people are telling me on the paperwork put another 50%. <laughs> That's a good one. And when it's hot <laughs> you're doing what you need to do. I've
0: suffered a bit if, from not seeing if those my
1: animals phone. contact that fence and they're not getting a good belt out of it. Yeah. You just you're not doing yourself any favors.
0: It's not it really will increase your workload. I've made a bit of a mistake with the weak charger and I'm upping it. Um, but yeah, what he says is right. I'm a, I'm i I'm hurting sheep way more than I need to right now. All right. So how many sheep can I have on 10 acres? Can you answer that question? You know, broadly
1: on 10 acres, I would start with probably out if you've never run sheep before, I would start with 10 ewes Yeah. And I would see what this entails. And you, if you're going to do rotation, you've got some other challenges out there. You, you're trying to, you know, have, provide water while you're rotating them. You're learning about fences. You're learning about how sheep act, behave. There's a lot of different things. So I think I would start there. And, wow, the second year, if you think, man, I had a load to forage, it's really not that big a deal to up it another five or whatever you need to do.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that the uh, risk of burnout with just overloading or overstocking is worth starting small.
1: Especially when you're starting and you're kind of learning as you go. Don't make it so stressful on yourself. Yeah.
0: Justine asks, um, do either of you sell baby sheep or cattle? I guess she means breeding stock. Do you? Um, you did a private sale for me because yeah. we're neighbors, but do you do that broadly or would you do that broadly?
1: yeah i would i would do heifers i have yeah. several heifers that i sail you know in the fall the fall time would be the time to get yeah, in touch with me
0: definitely and i can vouch for the genetics he did give me three of his best but they are doing really well on my grass right now so maybe maybe by fall you'll have yeah. a couple people well,
1: and we're going to be doing <clears throat> another grass finished steer in we have a harvest date in June, and we have another harvest date in September, mm-hmm. and those animals are looking like they're going to finish real good.
0: And you have a source. Well, your brother actually USDA kind of grades them a bit.
1: He just he's not in the uh, in that business for the USDA. He's an NRCS range specialist, okay. but he has experience with a lot of university. Yeah, and so he knows very well how to grade those where they'll fall kind of in the grade. Yeah. And that's going to be really helpful.
0: We have questions are still rolling in, but guys, we're six minutes off from the end of this webinar. I'm going to try to pack a couple more, questions, couple more questions in here of yours. Somebody asked about the farm on the web workshop and that's happening tomorrow. I'm going to go ahead and drop the button for you guys, but we are tomorrow. I'm teaching you guys how to build a website. For your farm or build a website for your business in general. What I'm going to teach you is just how to build a website and I'm going to share that button. Let me know if it worked for you guys. Um, but yeah, it's $15 and it'll probably be the best $15 you'll ever spend. If you want to build your farm on the internet, which we do need to do that. All right. Um, Hira, Hira Sean, she says, this information is so useful for me. I'm very much interested in ranching, raising animals. We have 10 acres. Thank you for all of this input. Somebody, oh yeah, that's right. Same thing. All right. Looking for more questions. Sorry guys, I'm trying to pack as many in as I can before we leave. All right. Great. I'm gonna ask try to ask one more question from my from my sheet that I felt like it was a really good one. So it's a quote by Alan Nation, and it says, Grassland agriculture is the most profitable form of agriculture when it is structured and managed correctly. Now, this was a quote that was made 30 years ago. Do you feel like it's relevant in today's world?
1: I think it's very relevant, but you also have to take the resource that you're looking at, which is the land and the rainfall where you're located in different areas. I mean, if you go to the Midwest, Iowa and the Corn Belt, where there are huge uh, yields on their row crops, i mean that's kind of a judgment question there if you take where we live this used to be full of row crops there are no row crops here anymore that tells you this is marginal land why everybody went broke doing row crops it it won't do row (laughs) crops so in this case where we live i would say the grazing thing is yeah it's the top but that may not be the case for every location
0: I have a friend, I think you're on here, Rosalie, she's in Colorado and she struggles with the irrigation issue and she can't yes. grow grass as prolifically as we can here. So I do think that's a good point that that grassland agriculture comment is needs to be taken in context where you're farming, yes. what you, what your landscape looks the like. The
1: irrigation for. thing is huge.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So Rachel says, what is the most important piece of advice you can leave for aspiring livestock farmers?
1: You need to have a passion about what you do and there's, you need to, to see a way ahead for it to be economically successful. But the passion that drives you is grassland, grazing land, ecology, grazing land, ecology is everything from the health of the soil, the grass plants that are there, the livestock that live there, the wildlife that lives there. To me, as you can tell, it's a passion. It's fascinating. It's an adventure that is without, there's no limit on the challenges that's there for us to improve it. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. But that's that's what has to drive it really.
0: Yeah, it does. We got to think about the economics, but at the end of the day, I think you'll probably have to work harder at this than you will at anything else you could <laughs> choose to do. And it's, it's, be- it's like what you said, you've got to have a passion for it. So the, um, what was the thing I was going to say that we were talking about before we got started?
1: About the hate?
0: No, it was going to be a good question, but oh. I guess if I forgot it, then I forgot it. Guys, we're two minutes off. Thank you, everybody, for joining us and for all of your questions. There
1: is. One thing about the economics and you asking about the hay, and that's one thing that makes my program very economically successful because I don't have all the equipment, the time, the fertilizer, the long list of stuff that goes in the time you take to producing hay. I don't have to do that. I can do other things to improve my, what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. The other thing is if you get in say a 30 acre or, if your acreage gets a little bit bigger and you're almost gonna have to have, depending on how much upkeep you have on your property, you may have to have a tractor. Yeah. There are some tractor models, some John Deere tractor models that don't lose their value. Okay, so you're looking at your economics and you're saying, I'm gonna need a tractor, but I know this tractor is gonna depreciate over the 20 years I own it. There are some models of tractors that don't Depreciate, they actually appreciate mm-hmm. those. Are the 40 series, the 50 series, the 55 series? John Deere, yeah. there's also a 7,000 series and an 8,000 series. So just chop those numbers down. And when you're looking for a tractor, these are older tractors. But if you buy them today, mm-hmm. you probably can sell them in 20 years for what you paid for them today.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really good pro tip there. Anybody who wants this information, they're gonna you're gonna be sent a replay by email. So don't worry. You can watch the replay a million times if you would like. <laughs> Mr. Abel, thank you, sir. You're welcome.
1: Very good. I'm glad I could be here. I enjoyed y'all. this
0: so much. And I everybody is saying that they enjoyed it as well. We're gonna end this here. Thank you guys. Thank you Very everyone. Good.
1: Have a good evening.
0: For more content surrounding regenerative farming, please visit www.harmonyfarms.blog. Click on the tab that says meet farmers at harmonyfarms.blog to join us for the next virtual small farmer meetup.